This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. So this is uh, Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast. Here we're at uh, BCBT 2018 together with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott. Hi, Tony. Hello. Good to see you. And we're here with Luis Fuentemila, who is um, a great researcher of memory. Um, So what's your definition of memory? I think memory, I guess it's it's kind of a complex question. Um, but definitely the way I would perceive memory is uh, is the only one of the only functions that allows us to bring some persistence over time. So, so basically it links moment to moment into a continuity. That's the way I see it these days. Okay, but now the title of your talk was to shape the unfolding experience into a memory code. So the idea of the title was a bit to uh, um, kind of like right to uh, uh, to kind of like point out um, that at the end of the wo- at the end of the world or at the end of the day mm-hmm. um, the, the way the, we, the way we create a world mm-hmm. is based on the way we make representations of mm-hmm. our inputs and that transformation which is like in essence one of the biggest problems um, nowadays to face somehow should be shaped by a representational system and some mechanisms that should be. Uh, frame into the memory, into the memory uh, um, function, let's say. So if you put this uh, kind of argument into the extreme, well, I would say that somehow, right, the way you perceive or the way you see the world or interact with the world, it should be definitely shaped by a memory system. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a kind of like a loop thing, right? So now, to, to start your talk, you you also emphasize remember this whole issue that also a memory system is also actually about forgetting, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. about selectivity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so how, how, how do you see the selectivity of a memory system? What, what defines its selectivity? Well, I think this is one of the important puzzles that we are facing in, uh, in the memory. Because uh, assuming that you're forgetting, it's quite, um, it's quite um, logic, because we experience that. I think everybody would accept this. But on the other hand, we are failing to this fallacy of accepting that something doesn't exist because we cannot uh, observe it. Uh, so at the end, like from a mental point of view, it makes sense to assume that uh, anytime you uh, you cannot recall things, it's because they are forgotten, and that might have a function. But on the other hand, there's this sort of like a fallacy of assuming that this doesn't exist. And I think, and the more you, um, so I'm not going to the response directly to what you answer, to what, to what your question um, your question was. But I think this is one of the fundamental problems these days. Like, what do we really forget? And if we forget anything, because at the end, we, you can assume that at the end you create mental schemas or you kind of like transform into mental configurations that might also impact into the future. So that's on the, on the one hand, the problem of forgetting. Um, but on the, other, on the other hand, I think that from like a um, kind of like a mechanistic point of view, it makes total sense that somehow um, most of our information should kind of like disappear from our, um, to be kind of like directly available. Of, uh, and then forgetting should be useful for this. So it has to be some sort of like a pruning process, at least, uh, at least from the availability um, point of view. And uh, it kind of raises the question, what is memory for? I mean, why do we have memory? Mm-hmm. What's, I mean, what is the practical use mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. an animal to have mm-hmm. memory or mm-hmm. for a human? Well, I guess the one, maybe the way I see it now, at least with the research I'm currently doing, is because it helps you learning more. It helps you interact like effectively. And uh, 
And um, I wouldn't say take decisions because that enters into the decision making the decision making world. Um, and I'm not like I'm spotting into this, but uh, but somehow the idea that a memory uh, basically shapes your experience is because you assume that that should be useful in the future for something. Yeah. So you make uh, right. It's kind of like I guess it's like in the middle of like this predictive um, coding scheme as well somehow. I mean, I think it's there's a sort of contrast with our everyday idea of what memory is for, which mm -hmm. is for retrieving things that have happened in exactly. the past and reliving them mm. and so on. Whereas in fact, maybe why it's mm. the systems have evolved as they are mm. is to help us in the here and now to make better choices. Mm. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess that, yeah, that's uh, kind of like an important question. So the extent to which memory just uh, can be simplified, if you wish, or kind of like a big kind of like a um, um, chunk into the post into a, into a kind of a functions to take decisions or not. Or whether this brings you out something else in the higher level functions like the self or uh, you know like this sort of like a perseverance of your of your identity if you wish i think it's a mystery i'm as a psychologist i am not that into the idea of like uh, assuming that memory is a simple function or it can be simplified as a function to take decisions for the future i would like to think that there's something it brings up something something else as well like the self for instance which i'm not that sure maybe we can discuss this possibly to what extent the self or the agency can be also like simplified or it's it takes it takes a, it, it exists because it helps us out to take decisions for the future or optimal decisions and how about how about uh, mental time travel uh, uh well i mean uh, uh that's uh, kind of like the, the, the end of tubing uh suggesting from the very beginning isn't it like the essence of like episodic memory and what basically distinguishes us from animals um um, I sympathize with the idea that, uh, that, that right that we can uh, basically that memory uh, kind of like it's the only way that we can just loop around time in a, in a virtual world, which is extremely relevant for many of our interactions with that. Um, I guess that the crucial point is whether we need to be um, conscious about this constantly, the, the auto autonomic um, mm -hmm. uh, function of memory, or let's say um, property. Um, um, <clears throat> Uh, I, in my view, actually, I think that actually this mental time travel like property is essential and I fully believe that it's like a critical point for uh, at least in humans. Um, uh, yeah. No, it's so in your own research that you, that you discussed, the starting point were these different models of memory that, that had a dual, a dual process perspective, mm -hmm. right? Where, where you would say, look, we have acquisition of memory. Mm -hmm. To mm. the two phases, mm. and there's retention and expression of memory. Mm. Acquisition is the more hippocampal process, mm. Mm. and the long term retention mm. and also expression mm. is a more cortical process. Mm. Right? So, so, why are these dual process mm. models mm. relevant as a starting mm. point for your research? Mm. Um, well, um, um, so basically, this uh, kind of like dual system model it's like an ancient thing and it's a kind of traditional view from, uh, from the 90s and uh, and, uh, and and still think it persists heavily. And I'd say I would say that that's actually that's something that people like is taking it more and more and more serious. Or basically because they're proving, or it seems to be a valuable point of view to address many of the um, um, problems that uh, that are needed to understand for um, to basically to understand how the memory is supported by the brain. So I like the idea of this dualism because um, a memory should be a function that should deal with present. Um, you cannot just think about like I don't really like the idea of like thinking about memory as a 
an encoding process and a retrieval process, as if you were these two were completely separate, um, because it's completely pointless in daily life activity. We are just you know like basically cancelling out everything from the surrounding and just retrieving properly or just incorporating information at least when we are grown because right the memory is always there and representations are there. So at the moment that you uh, try to uh, simulate this reality, then you need a system that deals with this. And uh, this dualism seems to be, at least from uh, kind of like a, right, the very the principle or like the kind of like the essence of the mechanism seems to be quite uh, sweet to understand it. Mm -hmm. That's why I feel comfortable with that. And I think that's uh, why people now that basically are trying to bring uh, this um, conceptualization of memory as something that might deal with the present is comfortable with as well. So the moment you bring like computational models, like you start talking about like a, um, um, states, how states are basically relevant for decision making, uh, right? All these sort of like questions that people are bringing up now. I think these models, uh, that's why these models are so, uh, so um, 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 influential again and again. But, but now the, the experimental paradigm that you pursued focuses very much on this notion of reactivation. Mm -hmm. right? So in mm -hmm. some sense, we, we have the simplified model so far in our minds, which is we have acquisition, retention, expression. But now you bring in an additional component in that, in that process, which is reactivation. Mm -hmm. right? so, so why do you think reactivation gives you a lever mm -hmm. in understanding how memory functions? Mm -hmm. I think reactivation is based. I mean, and the frame of this uh, of this event these days, I'd say that it's a direct parallel of this uh, sort of like a, a metaphor of, let's say, of a living machine. So it's one of the instances from the memory point of view and from this idea that there's these two systems that basically interact heavily at the moment. There's on the one hand there should be an interaction, and this interaction should be based on a transformation of the inputs. Should be kind of like right. I mean, it should be something. It should be. The two of them should talk into a language that should be memory-based, let's say. And uh, reactivation helps us, or helped me at least, to basically formulate a mechanistic hypothesis that uh, fit quite well with this, with this possibility. Um, it's one of these uh, uh, mechanisms that, that really allowed me to think about how we instantly transform, rapidly transform any experience into a kind of like, let's say, memory buffer, very initially, like working memory, if you wish, uh, but also at long term, right, at uh, sleep consolidation. That's why I, I, I kind of like, like to frame this mechanism as a kind of like critical ingredient for initial transformation of not just perceptual system itself, but for what we call, let's say, uh, experience memory transformation, if you wish, something slightly more complex. And this replay can incorporate anything. I mean, at the moment that you create a parallel world, even if it's instant, rapid and interacts with the rest of the brain, let's say, then at that point you can incorporate as many things as you wish, like uh, uh, goals, uh, right, um, uh, value, uh, whatever you wish in there. And I think it's relevant because it's quite effective. I mean, would you say that um, replay was the mechanism for consolidation, or are there other ways? Well, I guess uh, I would, I'm, it's not the only one. I wouldn't believe that that's the only one. Um, it's a, it's a, it's one that fits well with uh, um, with uh, with the systems level consolidation model. Um, but for instance, there are, there's another one which is quite uh, intriguing in my view from Giulio Tononi, like the, <clears throat> the synaptic homeostasis um, um, hypothesis, which basically states that um, um, the brain has this sort of like a, or has this sort of like a threshold state that basically is lowered, lowered during the during the night during REM sleep, especially that's what they claim, and at that time anything that has not like the the strength in connection 
that uh, basically uh, um, surpass this threshold dies and and forgetting is based on that. So at mm -hmm. the end, I think it's a combination of many mechanisms. But replay seems to be uh, uh, critical at least, um, you know, like to, to, to fit into this sort of like holistic model of how this uh, the hippocampus with the brain interacts. I mean, I think in uh, sort of associative models of memory, y you need something like replay because one-shot learning is mm -hmm. not practical mm -hmm. in most of those models. You mm -hmm. know, neural network mm -hmm. models, for example, mm -hmm. don't learn well off one example. They have to repeat the example and they generally have to interleave it with lots of other examples to maintain balance so uh, and this brings you to this uh, opinion that you that you said that you have to have this fast learning one-shot learning system and then that trains the slow learning systems so you see a big difference then between the the way that the fast learning system will operate uh, and how consolidation is happening elsewhere in the brain Exactly. It's I mean I mean it's it's like simulating the rehearsal phenomena. So the idea yeah. that uh, right you train the other system to uh, to acquire this knowledge. Um, I mean still still we assume that that replay is a kind of like direct correspondence with inputs somehow. And yeah. that's something that I'm not that sure yet. Uh, for instance, like we use this sort of like methodology with a with a classification approach, right? With the pattern classifiers, multivariate decoding algorithms, which is basically essentially you assume right that the input or the elements or basically the neural responses, neural patterns elicited during experience should be, right, should be similar to those that are, uh, that should be similar to those that are, that are, that basically are linked to the replay activity or to that. Mm. And that comes because we know the animal model with the fixed precession, the sequence, but uh, I mean, uh, right, the animal studies are, right, slightly limited compared to human experience. And, uh, and I think we are really like far away still to, uh, to kind of like make this kind of like that bridge, um, bridge this gap, right? We take this assumption that sequenced uh, pattern completion, all these sort of like uh, elements that involve replay that has been shown in animals should correspond to uh, our human experience or the, let's say our learning experience. And uh, I'm not that sure yet about that. I'm not sure if anybody knows it yet. But we, assume, we take this for granted, but I'm uh, not sure. Right. Except for the, for the, for the, the kind of like the living, uh, um, the living machines, these sort of like questions are quite relevant, isn't it? Because again, yeah. or for the, for some of the projects you guys are like uh, working on these days. Well, I think the sure we, this is the right point. <laughs> <laughs> are we talking about absolutely? Absolutely. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, I think the process of consolidation can be thought of as multi-stage because mm -hmm. uh, your consolidation, you're still consolidating an episodic memory. Mm -hmm. Um, but at some point where there are commonalities across episodic memories, you consolidate further into declarative memory mm -hmm. and you lose the sort of maybe or you, you it's less important to have those memories specifically tagged to particular events that have happened. Mm -hmm. So you learn something that's common across events. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, do you, is that distinction useful to you or do you think everything you're studying is episodic? No, absolutely not. Actually, that's one of the puzzles. For instance, like we now we're running one of the experiment with a, uh, in a, let's say in the real world, yeah. which we ask people to uh, kind of like these. Uh, we use these wearable devices, and we ask people to wear this camera for a long time because one of the puzzles is that when you bring people and you test, let's say episodic, uh, um, episodic, you ask them to recall episodic sequences of their own life. Um, most of the things are basically forgotten. They are. If you are yeah. into a routine they love, you go to the office, right? You go home. You basically, you, things are so highly overlapping 
that you may say that most of your episodic memories are forgotten. So at the end of the day, especially with a, um, so at the end of the day, <clears throat> when you test for the classic episodic memory recollection, let's say this vividness completely disappears. People is messing up, and we think that actually. Or they're that, using a schema to sort of fill out. And then out. we need some. Yeah. I think that actually, um, uh, in the system, the way we. Uh, replay information the way we consolidate it with that we we need to put some more weight into this sort of like mental models right. that are slightly right that are more relevant of course episodic memory it's i think it's in essence it's extremely important and uh, defines our many aspects and it has a direct link with animals but still in our day life it might not have the impact that we may yeah. i'm not sure about this center this argument but it's it's a fact right i mean We've been doing that. We ask people to wear these cameras. We do have like instances. We can even like record like short clips. We bring them back to home, uh, to the lab. We ask for their memories. And they realize that it's their own life, but they cannot recollect the full experience. They cannot yeah, recollect yeah. the event. It's like, come on guys, it's your own life. I mean, isn't it supposed to be? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's another skill, isn't it? To actually, to be able to convert memories into narrative. And I think the develop really clear it, right? yeah, yeah, and the, the developmental mm. literature shows mm. that, that children mm. prior to school age are, are mm. terrible at, mm. at sort of telling stories about their mm. lives, mm. but they learn that, mm. you know, and as adults we get mm. better at it. Some people are better well, at it. Well, maybe that also illustrates your earlier point about yeah. memories also forgetting. Mm. Right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Story. Exactly. Oh. But, but, but you, so you guys, for me, are moving really quick because you, you have an experimental paradigm where you, where you test memory using reactivation mm -hmm. and you do it using a conditioning paradigm which actually is again mm -hmm. bringing another also a possible confound in there we should look at right because basically what you do is you have a pairs of stimuli or, mm -hmm. or sets of stimuli mm -hmm. one of which you you condition mm -hmm. your your subject mm -hmm. uh, to with with a sound mm -hmm. right and then you use the sound during sleep to as you believe, reactivate that memory, mm -hmm. and hopefully mm -hmm. through that trigger the whatever chain of, of items or memories it is related to. And this is the core paradigm. Mm -hmm. And what you see with your healthy subjects is that you get about a 10% improvement mm -hmm. in, in recollection mm -hmm. of associated items, mm -hmm. right? From, from that stimulus that, that you trigger with the sound, mm -hmm. uh, as compared to, to stimulus that you don't stimuli, you don't reactivate. So mm -hmm. now we know, so we could say, well, so you've shown that reactivation during sleep leads to a, a slightly improved mm -hmm. recollection, 10%. Mm -hmm. no, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, um, imagine how it would be like to uh, have more than 10%, right? We would have like the key of a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, look. Yeah, right. Okay. It's, it's quite subtle, yeah. Right. Then, uh, okay, so he, here we go. So, but, but now, during sleep, does it matter when you play the sound, how long and mm -hmm. what intensity, mm -hmm. how often? Yeah. What's the trick there? Mm. Uh, so one of the, no, that's a really important aspect, actually, of the design that I haven't mentioned in the, in the presentation. I realized that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have to be, I had like, I had like, I was just halfway through of my, of my life, of my life. I know what happened. No, seriously. I mean, I really wanted to present the last time. Time warping, right? I don't know. I don't know. I normally, I'm not that bad in time. I mean, it's kind of like time scaling thing. Somebody was interrupting. Uh, no, it was really funny. It was funny, absolutely. <laughs> really? <laughs> but uh, no. Right, so we um, we are not sure about this kind of like the, the kind of like intensity of the sounds. Um, I'm not uh, sure. I'm not aware of any uh, kind of like study saying that this, right that the intensity has to be in a certain level so mm -hmm. that you know like the trigger things during sleep. That's all. Um, we definitely have to repeat the presentation every year, more than once. Uh, repeat a few times um, to uh, 
at least we, we repeated like seven times each of the uh, sounds per condition or per association. But we know from others that sometimes they have to repeat it even more. Um, so that's an important aspect, you're right. But the critical point and something we control because um, uh, we know it from uh, many studies is that uh, at least at least it seems that to uh, induce some sort of like uh, beneficial effects of this sort of like uh, artificial reactivation, let's say, um, design, um, these sort of memories have to be uh, specifically uh, um, um, uh, um, uh, um, reactivated during slow wave sleep, which is like uh, one of the deep, deep, deep sleep, what they call um, was it's one of these stages, like it's basically stage three and four. Um, that uh, so it's basically taking place normally in the, the first half of the of the sleep. So sleep has this uh, small architecture, kind of like with five stages, um, and but there's two kind of like two big like a uh, stage of like a sleep stages that are basically defined by uh, uh, brain activity, REM sleep, slow wave sleep, and the slow wave sleep is the critical one because they claim is where this there are few neurophysiological signals and uh, responses and mechanism that seems to be specially dedicated uh, to. Um, to promote this sort of interaction between hippocampus and uh, cortical regions. Mm -hmm. Is um, that counterintuitive? Wouldn't you have expected that playing it during REM sleep would work better? Well, the point is that during REM sleep, um, it is believed that the cortical, so the cortical activity is highly active and uh, is completely uncoupled to uh, hippocampus. So then the model wouldn't work in that, fine, in that way. Because the model assumes that, uh, right, the class, this uh, dual model uh, system level like, um, uh, learning thing, uh, basically assumes that memories are somehow like initially stored in the hippocampus, probably together with our neocortex. And uh, during this sort of like consolidation window, this optimal state, these uh, two uh, regions or these two kind of like um, um, kind of like um, um, uh, uh, networks, let's say, interact heavily. And uh, and uh, that needs to be in a moment in which they do it. And uh, probably also it's known that this um, is around where you are fully like a, right disconnected from the environment, which is basically you might focus a bit more, kind of like a, a tie up, tied up a bit, uh, you know, like the mess you have in your brain, if you wish. So right. it's uh, yeah, I mean, you say because the REM sleep uh, involves like a higher, let's say, more. Um, so that would already point to the fact that that's really like a system memory. In this case, is a system mm -hmm. property that that exists in interaction with hippocampus mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. cortex. Mm -hmm. right? Yes, exactly. Well, that's the idea. Of the model, that I mean, there are many papers showing that that makes sense in animal studies with entorhinal cortex and with uh, recently with uh, with auditory areas using similar stomach, similar sort of like designs, uh, and in humans with fMRI there are a few papers as well. Also with kids, they was just recently published. Right. So you, the, some of the data you're pointing to were showing replay in hippocampus and replay subsequently in cortex. Mm. There was that in uh, sort of sensory cortical area, mm. it was visual mm. cortex, mm. was it? Mm. Um, so, but you interpret the replay in cortex as being about memory consolidation mm -hmm. as well as the replay in hippocampus or the, because the replay in cortex could just be the playing out of the memory. Mm -hmm. So um, it, mm -hmm. the consolidation could happen in one or both places yes. or in some other place where you're not measuring. No, no you're right. That's, I mean, I mean uh, this model, the model that basically these two systems are fully separated that, and uh, basically yeah. uh, uh, start interacting in specific moments with your consolidated function and then completely that's, uh, uncouple again. I think it's a bit, um, uh, a bit uh, yeah. extreme, extremistic, or say, if you wish. I mean, it's not totally valid in the context of like a, of a interaction with the world. Um, uh, one of the things we know is that you whenever you recall information, 
at least from fMRI studies and uh, some animal studies as well. Whenever you're recalling vividly the information, somehow like uh, sensory related areas, maybe not like the primary areas, but uh, sensory related areas linked to these memories tend to be uh, tend to be active. Mm. Um, I mean, in essence, it would be like so. The full idea is that, uh, with that right, this kind of like vividness of your memories should be supported by some sort of like uh, represent representative formats. Yeah. Or maybe, uh, so in that sense, assuming that replay uh, involves um, uh, representational stages of this information to help out yeah. transforming it, it's not uh, incongruent or not. I mean, when we're thinking about what's being consolidated, mm-hmm. uh, presumably we're imagining a very different signal in the hippocampus from mm-hmm. the one that's in cortex. Mm-hmm. The hippocampal one mm-hmm. is going to be a very much compressed version mm-hmm. of the memory and then it's going to be reconstructed in the mm-hmm. particularly if the sensory cortex is going to be reconstructing something like the original mm-hmm. stimulus mm-hmm. or the effect that stimulus would have in cortex so i mean for consolidation to be effective i guess it does have to happen in multiple areas of the brain mm-hmm. or it, it does have to be the case that this mm-hmm. system can mm-hmm. reliably mm-hmm. reconstruct based on a compressed trace mm-hmm. so do you think of it in those terms? No, I'm, yeah, I think it's a really wonderful idea. You know, kind of like a, there's somebody mentioning that in the, in this kind of like event, this idea that um, uh, right, like a, a memory or memory representation or let's say like a virtual representation of the world, it's timeless, right? And we give we give some sort of like a structure, we give some sort of like a real sense of like a reality whenever you bring it to a. Uh, similar sensory input something somebody just mentioned this possibility and I think I kind of like a, I think it was Josh maybe something or maybe it was no it was Josh then uh, so how this sort of like compression phenomena I think it makes sense in this uh, in this uh, in this framework so that the memory doesn't really care about time itself for instance it's just you know like a compact version yeah. of like a, and then maybe at the moment that you interact with the system that is fully dedicated to interact with the world then you have to give this well, the the thing is, when you think it through, it, it gets rather complicated because mm-hmm. you have perceptual learning systems mm-hmm. which are encoding signals, mm-hmm. sending them to the base to the mm-hmm. sorry the hippocampus, mm-hmm. which is storing them in some way, mm-hmm. and then that's being retrieved and replayed and has to be decoded. Mm-hmm. That decoding, so that that encoding is being learnt and can change over time. So anything you've stored in the hippocampus mm-hmm. could become outdated and couldn't ma- and may not no longer match mm-hmm. the decoding apparatus so everything has to be kept in balance mm-hmm. and so you, uh, all this sort of in computer terms offline mm-hmm. learning that's going on during sleep may be about mm-hmm. rebalancing all these different systems oh, so see. that they're mm-hmm. all in sync mm-hmm. yeah yeah well that's Sounds also good, yeah. what louis what your mm-hmm. your second experiment you discussed mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. speaks to that right because there you look at the comp- competition between mm-hmm. memories mm-hmm where you had two kinds of associations, mm. uh, A and B, and B and C, mm. right? And you look at how then triggering B would affect the reactivation-dependent mm. recollection of mm. A mm. and C. Mm. But then what you looked at also is sort of the, the time delay mm-hmm. in that process, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you saw A, B three hours ago, mm. right, and now... Uh, I'm going to do a reactivation experiment. Mm-hmm. Does this time delay influence the memory? So is there a competition between mm-hmm. memories, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I hope I, I summarized the experiment correctly, um, because the point there was that you did see 
a competition between memories, as you called it. Mm-hmm. Right? That's mm-hmm. correct. Correct. But do you see this as an active competition mm-hmm. or a passive? Mm-hmm. That means, mm-hmm. let's say, since I saw something a while back, there might be just a decay of a trace, a non-specific decay. Mm-hmm. It's not regulated by anything. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, it might be an actively regulated competitive process. Mm-hmm. Right? It really compares the activity levels mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. winner takes all, whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So how do you see this, mm-hmm. this competitive process play out, given the data that you have? Mm-hmm. No, I, th- I, I, yeah, I think it's a really important point, and that we couldn't disentangle. And uh, um, but we do, we did observe something quite uh, relevant that might speak about the possibility that there's something active, um, although it's a bit like a, a con- uh, contradicts a bit that, that the active, active phenomenon, active process could happen while you sleep, right? Um, so in one of the points of experiment, it was just a, slide, a very fast slide at the very end. So we also studied what is uh, how are the neural signals or neural oscillatory activity elicited by the sounds uh, of the two conditions while people were sleeping. So people were completely like uh, unaware of the environment. They were fully, we could control for this, like slow wave sleep were on, on, on track. Um, and then we uh, studied which were the neural responses when you gave the sound, when you presented the sound, and the condition in which mem- associated memories were boosted afterwards, and on the condition in which associated memories were forgotten or kind of like for forgetting was promoted. So it was exactly the same circumstance, exactly the same one. People were basically sleeping, the same sort of sounds because counterbalanced, but the neural signals were completely were completely different. So it seemed that actually the brain treated this input right completely different as a function of what it has to be done. That was the interpretation we did because we had mm-hmm. the big hurdle effect. Mm-hmm. And that I of course we could not like uh, attribute that as if it was an active or a passive. But it seems to me that uh, somehow the brain entailed the, like the memory reactivation phenomena, but when it had uh, when it uh, when it detected that it competed somehow with some, because of where well, we just claim we just hypothesized that it was because of this uh, um, uh, the strength of this association was not uh, could be uh, potentially complicated to deal with in the future. Then this activates also this other mechanism, this extra mechanism that we couldn't see in one condition. Mm-hmm. So like to, uh, to 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 kind of like summarize this point. We observed that under the same conditions, um, experimental conditions, with the same sort of like stimuli, and during sleep, in one of the the, the, the neural responses were slightly different, and uh, one component just appeared in one of the conditions, not the other one. So I think it seems to me that actually um, these uh, um, organizational principles are active. Uh, I'd say. And you would place them in hippocampus and cortex or in their interaction and. What's the mechanism behind mm-hmm. that? How, how do you envision that? Well, um, um, well, I guess from psychology point of view, the easiest way to see this is under the framework of like this sort of like a, a induced forgetting phenomena, for instance. Right? So the idea that uh, so there's the uh, there are these these studies from uh, Michael Anderson and others who basically state that whenever you inhibit yourself to retrieve information, right, actively. Uh, Right, you stop your thinking of this. The consequences of this at the long term is that suddenly or eventually you might not uh, recall this information anymore. Um, this is like a, an effect that has been like framed into specific experimental design, and we know it depends on this. But uh, somehow the possibility that this may happen also speaks about this uh, idea that um, this active forgetting may take place in the brain, mm-hmm. and uh, it helped us out understand uh, this phenomenon at least in the context of this study. Right. Um, of course, I mean, I guess that like, like you know, like um, making the parallel of our experiment where people were sleeping with, 
with induced forgetting where people is trying effort, I mean, putting an effort to forget this is just not a completely different mm -hmm. story. Yeah? But still, maybe the mechanism is similar. But that then also links to, to this idea you discussed through your third experiment on how to avoid memory clutter, right? Memory, mm -hmm. to avoid memory clutter would actually mean that you actively mm -hmm. also forget or mm -hmm. suppress. Sure. Right? I think actually that the way we understand or the way we see forgetting is extremely essential to... Uh, to um, uh, so the incorporation of forgetting allows you to understand uh, right, that, 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 that the memories are organized some way. Otherwise, I mean, thinking about like, you know, like the things that are associated, considering that most of our experiences, especially when we are like experts in learning and uh, we acquire so much knowledge, the links that we can make with things are so high. And so uh, at any point that we need some sort of like principles that govern this, this, um, this problem and forgetting, it's extremely useful, isn't it? I mean, uh, one of the principles that you pointed to was what you called the non-monotonic plasticity mm -hmm. hypothesis. Mm -hmm. uh, and that suggested that um, the sort of generalization that could happen mm -hmm. occurred to similar mm -hmm. uh, stimuli, mm -hmm. but then there was a dip. Mm -hmm. um, and it, so what occurred to me thinking about that was one of the challenges you have in episodic memory mm -hmm. is to distinguish memories that are similar in some way, mm -hmm. but you need to keep separate. Mm -hmm. um, sort of what what uh, you know we would call pattern separation in uh, in neural networks, mm -hmm. and that this non-monotonic plasticity is maybe about that keeping these memories separate. That you need to you know you need to remember what was different about uh, coming to the lab today compared to coming to the lab yesterday, mm -hmm. even though much of mm. the context is mm. the same mm. so i mean is does is, is that a useful concept for you thinking about pattern separation is a key thing here mm. Mm. and where also you might want to have active mechanisms for pushing patterns mm. apart mm. yes i know i i uh, i think this is like a, this kind of like duality or the kind of like the pattern separation pattern completion phenomenon yeah. it's an essential uh, mechanism to, to make us understand many aspects like uh Right, how two things that happen in the same context can still be uh, kind of like uh, represented separately. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's I difficult because, as you say, it's very yes. context dependent. Yes, on, absolutely. Yeah. So, some things yeah. you want to see them as mm. the same. For, uh, mm. Depending on the question, mm. you might mm. want to see it yeah, as the same know, effect. For this non monotonic uh, plasticity hypothesis mm. that you mentioned mm. from Newman and Norman, mm. to me, seems to say more about active forgetting mm. because you're speaking mm. of a threshold for mm. plasticity. Mm. If you fall below the threshold, mm. Then, then you you get depression, right? You re, you dissolve those mm. connections. Mm. So this would not necessarily get you pattern separation, right? It right. gets you more mm. pattern if you're sharpening, like mm. removing mm. the the the, mm. the low frequency components mm. of it, mm. right? Mm. If you sharpen, mm. if you want to. No, I, the initial the initial idea of this model when they divide, when they basically um, um, proposed it was to. Uh, was in line of like to try to explain the phenomenon of like active forgetting in the sense of like the experiments. Um, I think actually the pattern separation and pattern completion phenomena, which is a complex thing, and especially uh, to be tested in humans, it's still like many people that might uh, uh, complain about the possibility to quantify this in humans, mm. even though there are wonderful experiments around the world on this topic with humans. Um, but even though this kind of like concern, uh, there's also um, something that it's uh, that should be incorporated in these models, which is like. Um, because the, the, the essence here is what is like uh, what is the the elements of experience, what is the contextual elements of experience? Because the two are basically playing the central role in pattern separation, pattern completion, the way we conceptualize this. Yeah. Um, but the way we understand context, many many of the times involves like the, our 
physical surroundings, right? Or you can even like jump it up to a, a mental schema if you wish. Like, I don't know how the hierarchy can go up. But there's this sort of like uh, idea that there's this kind of like temporal context as well, um, right? This sort of like, a, and uh, in, in fact, it exists uh, this model that called like temporal context model in, um, from Aikahana. <clears throat> and I think this temporal context uh, idea is also fundamental and has not been uh, treated, uh, well, it's been treated like kind of fairly, but has not been, at least to my understanding, has not been like incorporated into pattern completion, pattern separation phenomena. Um, the sense that we can tease apart like a phenomena, things that happen, right, in same, same context in different days, right? That's one of the puzzles. But maybe the temporal context might explain quite easily because the, right, the, temporal, the, the time domain of these experiences are that simple. And the way we code for time, right, which is like a, another important aspect, might uh, kind of like help us uh, understand it. Mm. I mean, but wait, um, just for my understanding, uh, earlier you were saying that the memory system you study is agnostic about time. It just time warps everything to mm. make it really very compact. Well, that was uh, that, sorry, that was one of the ideas that somebody, uh, one of the speakers suggested, mm -hmm. and I thought um, that was uh, that that was wonderful. But as I already like uh, came up with uh, with uh, with some of the findings that people are like uh, finding these days. Um, um, uh, the, the existence of like time cells, what they call mm -hmm. um, so basically like cells in the hippocampus, who ba which basically seem to be um, uh, coding like uh, temporal gaps between uh, elements, Interval. intervals. Yeah. Um, I mean, I kind of like the idea that time should be represented differently in the mm -hmm. brain, and that the memory system kind of like uh, does not rely on the way we understand time. Or, uh, but still, right? It seems. Well, that look, if you want to do mental time travel. You better do it faster than real time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? That might not really help you very much. Okay, so this is we this this whole separation mm -hmm. between the time warped and compressed represents mm -hmm. more event and order, mm -hmm. in which you then separately again, let's say, inflate it time wise mm -hmm. to bring it back to behavioral time. Mm -hmm. Okay, that would make sense. But the thing as a memory system, you want to compress, right? You want to forget, you want to get rid of information. Mm -hmm. So maybe you don't want to have, like say, mm -hmm. the real time interval. Mm -hmm mixed in with the event sequence. Yeah. In fact, when we explore autobiographical memory um, uh, abilities of the, of, the, of the people of these experiments I've been in, and so, you know, like discussions with other experts or experts on the autobiographical memory field, you just realize that the first thing that people forget is this kind of like temporal context information, mm -hmm. right? Well, one of the things, one of the properties of the experience that seems to be Disappearing quite rapidly compared to others, so like uh, you know, like salience, novelty, spatial context seems to be quite. Uh, whenever you can recall information, seems to be quite preserved. But the temporal information, how which experience was before, when was exactly was like. I mean, you have the sort of like sense that it was not yesterday, and it was whether it was yesterday or was one week ago. But you are right. You're missing. Uh, it seems that it's something that disappears quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. But that's a uh, right. That's uh, that's not. No, no I, I, I like that, and I agree with you. Mm -hmm. But now, so too. Um, so before we really move to the, the MEG uh, work that, that you did on, on memory, um, so we started out with a dual process model, mm -hmm. right? Which is like an acquisition and, and retention model, mm -hmm. hippocampus cortex, mm -hmm. right? So it's not necessarily saying they work together. It's saying now first hippocampus, mm -hmm. then the cortex. Mm -hmm. So so given the experiments we've looked at so far, what should be our conclusion with respect to how cortex and hippocampus work together? to realize memory. Let me try to get the point. <laughs> um, so maybe one, uh, one way um, 
to think about these uh, two systems um, in the context of this event is that the hippocampus is essential, is the very first one to uh, generate a virtual world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that, that without that, uh, uh, without that, it would be completely impossible to, uh, um, um, to kind of like, uh, uh, no, that's, that's what I would think actually. And wait, wait, where's the item information now? Which item? Sorry. Well, also in your test, I have items. I have oh, stimuli, okay, right? okay, yes. Mm -hmm. So we have an episode, mm -hmm. it's actually a number of items mm -hmm. tied together, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So so you see that as, a, as also as a hippocampal process? I think it's definitely involved, as if it was like a, trying to resolve the binding problem. Mm -hmm. Whether it's stored there or it requires the other neocortex for mm -hmm. that. Okay, so but, but would you say they worked Cortex and programmers work together yes, yes. from beginning mm -hmm. till the oh, end of yeah, the yeah. existence of this memory. Yeah, okay, so this whole idea yes, yes. of sort of the traditional mm -hmm. models, mm -hmm. like hippocampus acquires, mm -hmm. cortex retains, mm -hmm. that you don't support now, given given the data you, you have. I'm, I wouldn't say so, right? Okay. I mean, um, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say so at all, actually. Okay. Um, I think it's a slightly more, um, the interaction between the two are more relevant that, uh, right. that we can think mm -hmm. about. And then you would put play, what would be in the relative contributions of the two? Mm -hmm. If you would have to give them a functional label, what would the hippocampus contribute? What does the cortex contribute? Mm -hmm. I think actually like that representation itself, like the way we understand, like uh, the, the kind of like similar to what uh, Tony was mentioning. So the idea that the, the representation of like something that resembles truly related to the inputs we had must be stored somewhere in the cortex. And the hippocampus should be free to do other sort of like uh, things. Mm -hmm. Could be could work, for instance, like as an index, as a pointer, something that allows to uh, write, uh, to, to kind of like bind uh, distributed information over the, we need, because we need to recall for anything, we need to give agency, we need to give value, all these sort of things. <clears throat> it, uh, it also may, uh, we would, uh, the hippocampus might also be a, um, 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 uh, an optimal place to do uh, comparisons, rapid comparisons of what you expect priors with the uh, with uh, with uh, current inputs, and that's uh, and basically to s to get drive signals to uh, to update models, for instance. So this sort of like computational um, 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 uh, issue should be driven by the hippocampus. Right. That's what I think. While the representation itself, the way we understand representation, in the way, uh, might be uh, better stored in the distributed in the cortex. That's the way I understand that. Okay. So that's why at the end we always see the two of them connected because mm -hmm. right they always work together. Right. Um, okay, so now we have an idea of the system, right? And so now we can we can complexify, right? Because then you start to look at MEG, mm -hmm. and then what you observed is that mm -hmm. if you just look at, at at the frequency distributions or the power spectra of your of your MEG data, mm -hmm. that better performance in these recall tests. Mm -hmm was correlated with also a much more pronounced and coordinated response in theta, mm -hmm. let's say somewhere around 8 hertz or so, mm -hmm. um, as compared mm -hmm. to um, in, impoverished recall, mm -hmm. where you saw a much more distributed mm -hmm. distribution uh, mm -hmm. across the power spectrum, mm -hmm. right, of, of uh, mm -hmm. energy in the different frequencies. Mm -hmm. So so is that a significant observation? Is this, is this informative for us now? If we start to think about this mm -hmm. hippocampal cortical mm -hmm. system, mm -hmm. so now suddenly theta pops out mm -hmm. in a very discrete time window, about mm -hmm. two seconds, mm -hmm. I think, after Stimulus presentation. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. So what's that telling us now about this, this memory system? Mm -hmm. How is, well, how is mm -hmm. that important? So I think actually the, relevant of, uh, or the relevance of, of this finding is that it basically expresses these uh, 
uh, or it put some evidence in humans, which was the point at that time. Uh, it uh, put this evidence in humans by showing that there's some sort of like principle of organization of information. If you if you understand information representation as if it could be captured by a pattern classifier, which is something that could right be endless discussed. Uh, but assuming that this is like uh, something that we can uh, argue, um, um, yeah, it uh, it basically provides of a mechanistic model um, that basically uh, confirms the idea that we need some sort of like organization during maintenance. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, information is basically uh, is basically wouldn't be um, wouldn't be um, preserved in a bound manner, if you wish. Okay, but does that bring you to to this notion of of, of the Nisman? Of a tete gamma code for memory? That was the point from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. That was the point. So the idea is like conceptually speaking, we didn't advance. Mm -hmm. So there's no conceptual advancement compared. Uh, we just, so that it was a much more methodological to the force, let's say, if you wish, uh, because at that time, um, this model of this sort of like representation or this sort of like mechanism that are tightly related to representations were not, couldn't be tested in humans, at least uh, as far as we knew. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and I think the data was uh, was quite nice, but completely in line with the model, at least at that time. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's relevant because it also like bridges the gap with like mechanistic models that were kind of like shown in animals uh, in many aspects, and it confers some uh, relevance to the the idea that uh, this kind of like a phase coding mechanism that seems to be quite that relevant um, in uh, in many uh, memory problem in many mm -hmm. memory functions. Right. Um, um, so now, for instance, like a, so that paper came out like 2011, I think. It's a kind of like an old one now these days. Um, and I know uh, from some of the work we did afterwards, uh, uh, because at that time we were one of the first doing these sort of like things. Uh, but now more people is uh, working on this. Uh, we've, uh, I think we've discussed that. Maybe not like linking it with, with theta, but somehow it seems that this sort of like a, a dual approach between like oscillations and this sort of like possibility to... Uh, uh, to um, uh, to search for representation, which is uh, another question, right? So this kind of like uh, tool or this sort of like combination right. of tools. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but so, 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 so far then, then, so the universe looks like very consistent, right? So, so you, you, we have an idea about, about reconsolidation or reactivation, how we can use that for consolidation. Mm -hmm. We have an idea how hippocampus and cortex work together. We also see signatures of dynamics that look comfortably close to Tatagama coding. So things look consistent, right, mm -hmm. and manageable. Mm -hmm. But then you start to do these decoding experiments with your MEG data, where you looked at the reoccurrence mm -hmm. of frequency patterns in your MEG signal, right? So you were measuring your MEG over many leads. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many hundreds you had, but yeah. plenty. Mm -hmm. Then from there you extracted, if you want, templates mm -hmm. of frequency responses. Mm -hmm. And then you just use the classifier to say, well, if, if I'm acquiring this memory, mm -hmm. do I, can I see any kind of, of, of echoing mm -hmm. of that frequency pattern in a memory interval as I'm waiting to perform a recall test, mm -hmm. right? This is, this was the experiment you performed. Mm -hmm. And then what, what you showed to us was surprisingly complicated mm -hmm. and, and also surprisingly complicated because this is MEG. So you sit at the outside mm -hmm. of all, you sit on the skull. So now we measure really like a very average signal across all brain structures, mm -hmm. not only hippocampus mm -hmm. anymore, right? The whole mm -hmm. cortex. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it's amazing because because you could really recover a, a pattern mm -hmm. that the patterns were replayed in the in the waiting period, mm -hmm. right? Before the recall test was applied. So mm -hmm. yes, you saw mm -hmm. 
the, the dynamic pattern that the brain formed to store mm -hmm. the memory is retained in this waiting period. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we would also say, yeah, and that pattern is occurring everywhere. It's across the whole of cortex, mm -hmm. because as far as I understood your data, mm -hmm. it was not very restricted to, let's say, the temporal lobes. Mm -hmm. or, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. right? so, so is that not now really some rocking the, bro the boat mm -hmm. in a rather mm -hmm. dramatic way? Mm -hmm. Like we were doing so well, we look so, <laughs> like everything mm -hmm. looks so mm -hmm. neatly organized, and mm -hmm. now we have this MEG mm -hmm. classification mm -hmm. result, which mm -hmm. seems to throw everything again mm -hmm. in disarray. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with that? Mm -hmm. Uh, that's actually, um, at that time, that was one of the things that we discussed heavily in the group. Mm. Um, so we assume that there's some representation. We assume that there should be some coding mechanisms for this representation. But other than that, we don't know anything. Mm -hmm. Or at least, not that we can you know, like make any strong hypothesis about. Um, one would say, for instance, like, well, because it's an offline representation, that should not involve sensory systems, for instance. But that's not the case. I mean, people have shown that in animals and humans. Right, okay, let's forget about that. So then let's think that actually this information should be kind of like represented in higher, higher visual areas, for instance, right? which it's true, but it might still affect like in, right, other areas, associated areas or like frontal regions, for instance. Mm. So at that time, if to be honest, we didn't know how to deal with this and we still see it complicated. And I wouldn't say um, we didn't resolve this. And actually, we, we kind of like discussed this with uh, mm -hmm. with one of the reviewers, and we said, like, yeah, I mean, it, that's the way it is. That's the way we saw it, mm -hmm. and we uh, think that it's extremely complex. Um, I mean, at least in that paper, we use like at least more than four, uh, fifty frequency bands. Um, um, actually, fifty frequencies. Mm -hmm. uh, we include more than fifty frequencies from delta to gamma. The whole. Uh, no, the we didn't include theta, but not uh, mm -hmm. bias our coupling measure. Um, uh, so we included from like uh, I think it was 14 hertz up to like 80 or something like this. Mm -hmm. Other like you know like the highest ones never kind of like showed. Um, but at the, end the, at the end of the day, unless you use some sort of like clustering algorithm that allows you to kind of like uh, kind of like slightly summarize like into MEG in a way statistical way, you always see so much noise in the data. We didn't implement any sort of like clustering approach because we didn't know what to observe, and at that time we didn't know how to deal with. Uh, with the decoding algorithm that that well, I mean, we just you know like jump into using this sort of like deep net thing or hidden layers, which was super complex. Right. That was another problem of the of the project, um, because because we used the hidden layer algorithm, we couldn't be fully certain about which were the patterns that were fully were basically accounting for the reactivation. So at the end, we kind of like infer that because we show some of these patterns in the supernatural material, but we never wanted to make any argument because methodological reasons didn't allow us to do it. And on the other hand, we didn't have any sort of hypothesis. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, I guess it speaks again about the representational problem, isn't it? Uh, but in your mind, was that the end of the gamma code or? No. No? <laughs> no, because we never, we never, we couldn't ever like talk about uh, sequential patterns. Okay. And I think that's a critical aspect mm -hmm. to talk about, right? Yeah, but I, you know, a, a device such as the brain, like a, a neural network, doesn't necessarily need to treat space and time differently. You know, you can convert one into the other and, mm -hmm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's, uh, and people do, you know, if you're compressing a movie, you, mm -hmm. time's just another dimension mm -hmm. along which you're compressing the data alongside space, you mm -hmm. know, so you, 
you're looking for patterns that are temporal and mm -hmm. spatial within the image and mm -hmm. temporal across frames. Mm -hmm. And so you'd think the hippocampus is going to do something similarly clever. It's just mm -hmm. going to look for ways of compressing information mm -hmm. across all these, these dimensions. Mm -hmm. I don't think time is going to be particularly privileged there. And so you could imagine a spatial code for time, which is what the time cells in CA3 may indicate. Or you could imagine, you know, these uh, uh, phase precession patterns. But I think this is something a little bit naive to assume that because there's a temporal sequence coming in, it's got to have a temporal storage. Well, there's order information you might mm. want to conserve, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, but you can do that order. spatially. You can map it into a spatial pattern, which, which has order. Mm. But then how do... All right. So you how do you read it out then, right? So. Well, you just... It has to be in the way it's encoded. There has to be some knowledge about how to read it out. You know, you, mm. so you have a, a, a cell which has a timestamp, but it's a, you know... You, or, or you have, you know, depending no, on where you are in the in that bit of... of of CA3, you're encoding something about time in the sequence. You know, mm. these, these, these things are totally possible. You know, they, the, the, the yeah, space the data, encodes time. Look with the physiology uh, of, of sweeps and, and shortwave ripples and, and phase precession. Well, there you replay. go. Well, that, that's a way of decoding space is that you have a ripple. And so the ripple mm. gives you your temporal sequence. So the encoding, mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we, we're not disagreeing fundamentally. You, you have both space and time uh, as mechanisms for storing and retrieving information. That's all you have. But there isn't a necessary given that temporal information has to be stored no, look, in a I'm, way that's more temporal. I'm, complete with, I'm completely with you on that. Yeah. I already threw time away halfway this discussion. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're not necessarily combining time with your item and context information. There's no need to do that. You time warp the whole thing. That was my point also earlier. Mm. You don't want to mentally time travel in real time. It doesn't buy you anything. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, so, so mm. that's why you also want to segregate from real time. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah. To manipulate it. And that means you don't have to privilege time. Absolutely. Having a special storage but mechanism. That, but that's something else as saying that the temporal dynamics of this circuit is encoding relationships between items. And yeah, yeah. Right? you have to unpack and, it, and, and, and that has to involve one time. reason why you want to kick out time. Yeah, yeah. So you can exploit the temporal code. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It becomes ambiguous, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so look, Luis. Um, now we dragged you along in this this speculation, uh, <laughs> and we see that you 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 still want to um, believe in the in the theta gamma code, which is good. <laughs> uh, this is a great idea, but so so you're as a psychologist, you're in this. Also, this the, the neurophysiology and also the, if you want, the neuropathology of memory, which is mm. work with epilepsy patients, mm. right? So, if people would like to follow in, in your footsteps in this this complex domain, <laughs> what would be Louis' law? Work a lot. Work a lot. Work a lot. Yes. <laughs> no. Yeah. Work a lot. Yes. And uh, be surrounded by uh, great people. I think mm -hmm. this is like uh, the element. Actually. <clears throat> Um, so I did my PhD here in Barcelona, but then I moved to London. And uh, of course I learned like, a, this is like, a, again, like a different ways of learning, right? So the two of them gave me completely different stories. But uh, <clears throat> so when I was in London, um, I had this opportunity to be surrounded by like people 
were amazing, and not just because of the you know like the sort so of papers. So in Barcelona they were not so amazing. No, 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 no. It was a completely different. So in Barcelona, what I learned because I had this sort of opportunity to do the PhD with myself, and so kind of, kind of right. And then you learn that working is an important aspect. It's well, we know it's how science goes, right? Mm -hmm. so that's one of these. So you have to dedicate a lot of time. But, um, no, but you're right, right? I mean the the academic culture in London. Yeah, fantastic. And then I just realized. And Sheffield, of course. And Sheffield, yeah, right now. Yeah, UK, yeah. UK generally. Yeah. UK generally. Well, so it's less, Tony. It's getting less. I'm not saying London itself. I'm just saying, like, this sort of like a drive that gives you being surrounded by uh, stimulating people, in, uh, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and, uh, and, um, and I think actually this is like a critical aspect. When I talk to. Uh, now I have my uh, students, quite. I mean, I came back a few years ago. And uh, I, I really have to express these ideas to them when they don't want to go out and do a postdoc, for instance. I say, look, it's not just, you know, like leaving your place, it's that it's an essential ingredient of science. You need to uh, not just, you know, like survive in, a, in another mm. world. You have to realize that this is something real or uh, partially real. And, uh, and, uh, and, um, and I would, uh, so basically, um, yeah, work a lot and, um, and be make some, friends. And Put make yourself friends, out yeah. there. Yeah. But then the second thing is, there's something about the relationship between Tony and myself that, that you're not aware of yet. Tony likes traveling, right? And I have to sponsor that. So always after a podcast, four years later, he visits the lab of the person we interviewed. Oh, good. To check whether a prediction they made during the podcast is confirmed or not. And um, since in this case it's just a tram ticket, we can also include your lab now. Um, you can come too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I might leave the lab myself. <laughs> but what's, so what's the prediction that you really would like to stick your neck out for today? For my lab, or generally? For your work. For my work. Yes, because he's going to go to your lab to check whether you confirm it or not. Um, uh, so I, you know, I kind of like have this sort of feeling that um, the, the sort of like line of research and the research that I'm currently doing, which is, um, it's going to uh, incorporate more and more, um, I would say on the one hand, risky projects, because that's something that I actually, I believe that this system in Spain allows you to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and at this, that on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, bring technology, more technology, other than, um, you know, like classic neuroimaging studies. Uh, something slightly more creative. I mean, that's why we started using like wearable systems, blah blah, all these sort of. We are not the only ones, of course. And um, and um, and something I'm not sure about, but I think that actually the system is pushing us to do it. It's something more applicable, something more into. I wouldn't say industry, maybe like for patients, but something like to a uh, um, um, fully dedicated to, to kind of like a to um, to solve problems. We are. So all these sort of ideas are already in the, the seeds are there because all the projects have these sort of elements now these days. But I think that these three will be uh, that would be my wish. Yeah, but no, uh, that's not the prediction I was expecting. Ah, okay. <laughs> I, if I'm going to be alive, I, I made a different <laughs> prediction on your prediction. I mean, you're okay. going to say I'm going to prove that all recall depends on gamma range responses ah, coupled theoretical ones. At, ah, I see. Uh, I see. Coupled <laughs> to theta, but only above 80 hertz. That's it. Science is hypothesis driven. Okay, That's yeah, what they tell us all the time. Mm. Mm. So, in four years? How many years? <laughs> I said four. Four or five. If you want two, that's fine. <clears throat> so, I think actually, um, um, I need to think a bit more. 
So the kind of thing you can print on a t-shirt, right? Mm -hmm. So actually, so what I think is actually we will be able to explain uh, many fundamental mechanisms, many, many of them would be applied to real life situations. And that's something I'm pretty sure we'll do it in two or four years, like pattern completion, pattern separation, but not just for lab-based experiments, something like completely naturalistic. I'm pretty sure we'll be able to do it. Will we be able to read out and replay people's episodic memories through fMRI? For instance. No, my hippocampus always lies. <laughs> but now, for instance, what we can do is what of experience we wanted to add in a kind of, now, now it's already like the data that we have in collaboration with people that have already worked with uh, with fMRI, which is fantastic, but at the same time, the EG gives you the possibility to uh, do it in, a, let's say, a, the fine grain thing. Right. We can, if you watch a movie, like stand the movie. I don't know if you know the papers. Yeah, yeah, I know these. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's and a bit grainy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it works with, uh, with we we did it with uh, with EEG, right. and, uh, <clears throat> and it worked fantastically well. I truly believe in this, mm -hmm. and uh, it's amazing. I mean, you can simply like. Uh, uh, you know, like disentangle and, and you know, like look and for your solution. What's your solution? You're, you're gonna see, like, oh no, no, because okay, he's the subject is looking at a human being, or you're gonna yeah. say the subject is looking at a Spanish man. No, 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 sorry, sorry, I wasn't saying like that, you know, like uh, decoding this sort of information. No, I'm saying, like, when you watch uh, a movie, yeah, I'm yeah. saying that from the signal, right, you're watching a movie, yeah, like, watching yeah. like our interview here, and uh. Right, right. By you didn't ask anything, and just by your brain signal, mm -hmm. we can now know which sort of chunks of information are going to be forgotten in the later recall. Okay. Ah, okay, okay. Right, okay. So you can tell me afterwards which information the movie didn't care about. Maybe. Yeah. That's maybe not the kind of application I would spend money on. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, seriously, because. Uh, um, <laughs> no, exactly. Advertising. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but that's one go. small step. A small step for Louise with a big step for neuromarketing. That's a real like uh, ambition for four years. Yeah, yeah. Like Great. Well, oh, you okay. see, Tony, you better be prepared. Luis Fontamila, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you very much oh. for the interview. Fantastic. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.